This is the podcast, Citizens Gone Wild, Thinking for Yourself in an Age of Hype and Glory. And today is kind of a special treat day, for at least for me. I have a house full of books, my wife will remind you if you ask, on uh, supporting Israel, the history of Israel, the history of the Middle East. But I don't have a book like the book that just came out, which is called Israelophobia and the West the hijacking of civil discourse on Israel and how to rescue it. This focuses on a particular area, basically the use of a language to undermine Israel. The speaker we're going to have is Dan Dyker, who has the coolest project name you'll ever hear. He is the director of the Political Warfare Project at the Jerusalem Center for Public Affairs. He's a former director general of the World Jewish Congress, and he is also a research fellow at the International Institute for Counterterrorism in Israel. To my great surprise, uh, Jews are losing the language wars when it comes to describing what's going on in the Middle East. And uh, the question is, how do we rescue civil discourse so we can get away from the use of words uh, like fascism and Nazis, which um, people now call Israel? Um, how do we get back to talking about Israel in reasonable terms? This has actually been very hard to do. And to my great surprise, uh, Jews are losing the language wars on um, universities in America and in Europe. Here is Dan Dyker, who will explain how we can get back on top of this. Um, Dan, what are you Thanks for having me, George. Oh, you're most welcome. We're delighted to have someone of your quality on this show. When are you well, going? It's really an honor to... Uh be part of your podcast and uh you know the what the book represents uh george is uh, it's a volume of some uh 19 uh essays quite well crafted around one singular challenge you stated it very well in the introduction of the podcast and that is the um it is really the, the rape and pillaging of language uh, regarding Jews and sovereign Jews living in the Jewish collective, which is the nation state of the Jewish Israel, uh, nation state of the Jewish people, in other words, the state of Israel. And we have been on a slippery sliding slope for many decades in the language war um, regarding how one um, enters into a discourse about Israel uh, and the Jewish people by extension. And in the United States, uh, because there are the very important free speech protections under the First Amendment to the Constitution, that has allowed uh, people to engage in a virulent new strain of anti-Semitism, which is called Israelophobia, or the blind hatred of Israel. Uh, and the, the kicker here is that this type of language that you mentioned in the introduction to the podcast, such as Israel being associated with a Nazi entity or an apartheid entity or a genocidal entity or a country that engages in ethnic cleansing of Palestinians, all of these representations, which are, um, are, are total, totally mendacious and without any basis, in fact, um, have been adopted in the United States in the mainstream discourse on Israel as some sort of epistemological uh, authority um, yes, and yes. nomenclature. 
uh, regarding the Jewish state. And, and that's why we wrote the book, is to try to recalibrate this, um, this wholly distorted um, and pillaged language uh, on Israel and to try to expose, just expose the lie and, re- and reestablish what the facts are uh, in, in order to allow the, um, the general public, the Jewish public and the general public to engage in a civil discourse about Israel, even if that discourse has criticism, which Israel and the Jewish people have always been the greatest criticizers of themselves in whatever communities they've lived in, in the diaspora, and certainly since um, the Jewish Yishuv, uh, the Jewish community in Palestine, uh, was established at the end of last century, uh, actually at the end of the 19th century, and uh, for the third time in history, and then since the founding of the State of Israel in 1948 and its diplomatic legitimacy as, uh, as the sanctioned in 1949 when it was accepted into the United Nations as a member state, Israel has been the most, criti- the most critical of itself, um, but then there have to be principles and values that underpin fair criticism of Israel the way good citizens of the world would criticize the United States or any other of the European and other democracies in the international community. Um, why do you think that this has occurred with such virulence on college campuses, which is supposed to be the home of rationality, calm discussion, reason discussion, of all places, I mean, I could see it in a bar, but um, at the universities, how of all the places for this to land, this strikes me as the most incongruous place for this stuff to uh, come down. Well, the way you describe, you know, rational discourse in university reminds me of uh, of the nineteen. 19- uh, late 1970s, early 1980s, when I was a student at Harvard College, we used to have liberal rational discourse uh, about all kinds of ideas. I remember uh, learning philosophy with a very, uh, with the renowned uh, Professor Harvey Mansfield, oh. uh, one of the great political thinkers still today at the age of almost 90, uh, one of the great political philosophers of our time, uh, certainly for the last uh, 50 years. Today, that situation uh, on college campuses and university uh, fora has changed because the ideas of postmodernism, of the idea that the nation state is the source of evil, it's not the answer. Um, it's not the answer to uh, to political troubles, but the nation state has been rejected uh, in large part by uh, by many who who talk of um, uh, not of rationalism but of relativism, of of feeling. Of, um, of my narrative versus your narrative. We live, I think, in an, an academic reality um, where if you take, uh, you know, if you major in gender studies, there is no, there is no particular truth uh, to one gender versus another gender. There is no particular truth to what we understood uh, 35 years ago to be the truth and the facts of history. Now history is all what you want it to be or what you believe it to be. Um, and that type of postmodernist thinking, with which Natan Sharansky, uh, who many, uh, some of your listeners may remember, uh, was the great Anatoly Sharansky, uh, prisoner, uh, prisoner of Zion, who sat in the gulag for eight years in solitary confinement because he was a lover of Zion, a lover of Israel, and he paid, uh, he paid a heavy price 
for publicly stating his love of Judaism and Israel. He said uh, he is a, an author in this volume, Israelophobia in the West, The Hijacking of Civil Discourse, and How to Rescue It, which just that your, reader, your listeners should know is available online for free in a PDF file at jcpa.org. You just click on the homepage to get the volume. What Natan Sharansky says in the volume, in his article, is that we have come full circle, just like in the good old days of Stalin, when they uh, when they said when the regime said Zionists, they meant Jews, and when the regime spoke against Jews, they meant the Jewish state, they meant Israel. So here you have this triangulation of hatred between Zionists, Jews, and Israel, which in the West, whether at Montclair State University, where you were a tenured professor for many decades, to Harvard University, that just hosted the Harvard out of occupied Palestine. Um, inaugural event on February 20th to universities across the United States, you know, um, they subscribe to this type, what they call political criticism. So you can call Israel a Nazi or an apartheid state, and that, is, that would not be considered anti-Semitic, but that would only be considered legitimate criticism. So the definitions um, of, of what we once knew to be anti-Semitic have been tossed on their heads, even though um, we know from the State Department definition of anti-Semitism for 2010, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, IHRA, definition of anti-Semitism that was uh, codified in 2016. We know that calling Israel uh, you know, a racist endeavor or referring to it uh, that way as an apartheid state or, or Nazi, uh, some sort of, God forbid, Nazi affiliation, that would qualify as an anti-Semitic representation. So there are definitional truths that have been re-energized and um, and formalized in, in in definition in formal definitions that are, that are widely accepted by governments in the Western world, but that doesn't solve our problem that you raised a few minutes ago on college campuses, where freedom of speech would, is is uh, has been, I believe, abused and pillaged as well, because you would never hear on college campuses someone using the N word against black students, um, you know, or referring to Hispanic students um, with, uh, with uh, equally horrible invective. But when it comes to Israel and Jews who support Israel, it's, it's completely an open ball game. There are no limits. Um, there, you know, there are no constraints. And I think this is a major problem that people, fair-minded academicians um, and rational people have to deal with in order to, uh, to try to uh, redefine and recalibrate this discussion on Israel, which has completely uh, lost all control and is veering down, you know, uh, the San Francisco streets uh, into San Francisco <laughs> Bay without brakes or anyone uh, to hold this anti-Semitic libel uh, in check. By the way, I wanted to mention that you don't have to buy a whole bunch of books miraculously. Um, this book, um, Islamophobia, covers everything. In other words, you mentioned some words. It gives you a list and an analysis of the main um, slanders told about Israel. And so if you have this book and you read it or just read the, the chapters by Dan Diker and Alan Baker, uh, you'll have a pretty good feeling for the whole thing. And there won't be much that will surprise you if you happen to go on a college campus and need ammunition to fight back. 
one thing well, that's true we do we do cover we do cover all of those as you say all of those um buzzwords that uh, such as buzzwords like illegal occupation there is no such thing as an illegal occupation we we alan baker uh, my co-author in this um in this chapter in trying to restore uh the legal definitions that that people have distorted uh, and and have lied about um, these are the definitions um, that that people today readily accept in their most retarded and and grossly disfigured forms. Um, what they call illegal occupation or OPT, occupied Palestinian territory, or ethnic cleansing or illegal settlements. These terms have a- have absolutely no basis in in uh, international law and discourse, and we show uh, what the proper nomenclature and the legal reasoning under those nomenclature uh, nomenclatures uh, legal reasoning is. So it gives people a guide in order to to correct so many of these uh, misnomers, and many of them uh, have been, uh, have been um, I would say, distorted um, with malice aforethought and not, as a, and not as a function of ignorance, and what they're trying to do is to play the general population for fools and to try to bring them into this Soviet-style propaganda that really would, would make Stalin proud the way the BDS crusade is trying to stain uh, Israel with its, uh, with its own bloody hands. By the way, one of the good things about this book is the area, it, it only st- they have brief definitions and brief analysis. And let me tell you, if you go to a debate on a college campus, you better be ready to say whatever you're going to say in a short manner. You're not going to be given a lot of time before the hooting and the hollering and the yelling goes. And um, so if you understand this and you maybe underline a few sentences, you'll be pretty well armed to say these people. Um, in order to get back at this people when they talk about it, I often say uh, Israel can no more occupy this land than your mother can occupy her own kitchen. And um, this will give you... Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I, that's right. It's well said. And you have to be very quick. And the nice thing about this book is that it, it, it it's sufficient. I mean, there's plenty of information. But each section um, will give you an analysis and a means to strike back on the spot, which is very, very important. You cannot imagine how uncivil uh, things have become. One thing I've noticed is that there are some people who are on college campuses who are, um, I guess you'd say, fighting the good fight. I noticed that Gordon Wood, one of the foremost uh, scholars of American history, left Harvard and went to Brown. Uh, I don't know exactly why he did, but he might have because he's gotten into this basic argument with other people at Harvard about what they call presentism. Don't get discouraged, folks, by the uh, lingo here. That just means that you have people at Harvard who are judging historical situations by today's standards which many people, uh, real scholars, uh, disagree with. Um, and I'm hoping this will put pressure on schools like Harvard to lead the way. One thing that puzzles me is that you have schools like Harvard who are seem frightened of these really punks. These people are fascists, but they're mighty short fascists. 
why are places like Harvard and Yale and, 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 and Rutgers afraid of these very tiny fascists? I can't. Well, first of all, uh, I, I think that it's, it's no exaggeration to call them Stalinists or even fascists because for two reasons. One, because they are completely in opposition to any kind of dialogue. They do not want to have any kind of rational discussion. They're not prepared to engage in any kind of rational dialogue. And that is why if you go on the Internet and you see violent um, interventions and disruptions by these what they call BDS groups or these Israelophobic groups um, represented by, by uh, Hamas supporting um, Students for Justice in Palestine, which are run, uh, which are led primarily by Palestinian expat professors, academics, and activists on campuses throughout North America, and they frighten people. They and they've even frightened, you know, leaders like President Larry Bacow of Harvard, um, who uh, I was, who uh, we had in Israel at the Harvard Club of Israel, we were in touch with him criticizing um, the Harvard University uh, student unions um, or student administration's approval of a $2,000 budget for Israel Apartheid Week. I mean, you know, that, that, that is simply, you know, a, it's simply a fascist type of, 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 of uh, multi-week um, defaming and delegitimization and dehumanization of, of, of Israel uh, that began um, some, years, uh, some years ago. Uh, and continues uh, today, but there's no discussing anything um, with these folks, and they are they are uh, what they are frightening um, the college administrations because the administrators do not they simply don't want trouble. They want quiet on campus, and therefore, if if they were to speak out against these outrages, these uh, they would um, be met with. They're frightened that they would be met with the you know sort of. Uh, uh, some sort of a mass movement or certainly very vocal um, opposition, and they, they see that just as spelling trouble. So they'd rather ignore it and allow those, uh, those uh, extremist voices to be heard and protected under the First Amendment. Um, and, and, and clearly the university campuses have always been and, you know, even rightfully so, they've always been the place of complete free exchange of ideas. But I think that we've perverted that platform of exchange of ideas that's because we certainly right. wouldn't have the Ku Klux Klan on campus uh, in an exchange of free ideas, even though you have anti-Semitic groups doing the same thing. You know, I have asked people, including people that I think of, you know, whether you agree or disagree with his policy, strong people like Governor Christie about this sort of thing. And he said, no, 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 no. He, I mean, a man like that is scared of these people. And he said, no, 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 there's freedom of speech. We don't want to get into that. And um, I, I've asked other people as well. Now, there might be some truth in what they say. That is, that is, they can cause trouble. And that can result in lowered uh, admissions. This happened at the University of Missouri. And I've done a little research on this. And schools that have trouble 
often have other troubles. Contributions slow down, and uh, people don't want their kids to go there because most people aren't really listening to the details. All they hear on the radio or the TV is there's trouble at Missouri. And all of a sudden they say, well, why don't we just go to this school over here? And so these people are, are very, very effective um, and there's no question in my mind that people are frightened of them. At Rutgers, uh, they were they ran into some trouble, and people started to complain about the lack of free speech. So the president, the past one, uh, said, "Well, we're going to have a free speech conference," and they had one, but no one much came because he never said where it was and when it was. I mean, this is comical in a in a certain sort of Marx Brothers way. But it's kind of unnerving that the president of, um, of a university is frightened of a group of uh, punks, really. Uh, um, I'm still unnerved. Well, sure. I, think, I think the, the problem that we, the problem that we face, I think, is uh, is the code of that we don't have a code of conduct at right. universities. I mean, you, if you had if you had students uh, from you know I don't know what do you want to call it the white the WASP, uh, the White Anglo-Saxon Protestant uh, Student yeah. Organization, which don't exist. I'm just using it. I'm just using it as a, as, a, as a ridiculous example. If they were to come out and 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 you know start using the N word um, every day, yelling on campus uh, against uh, blacks and, and Hispanics and Asians, um, uh, you know the way they're doing it against Jews. Well, they wouldn't last very long on campus. Either they'd be pummeled. Uh, uh, by those minorities themselves, you know, those would be acts of violence, but I'm sure that the people would find sympathy for that, or cer certainly on the basis of freedom of speech, they wouldn't be able to, they would not be able to continue that type of behavior because the, um, the university administration would take action against them. Uh, that's, that's clear because universities don't want to see themselves in the headlines of the New York Times or the Boston Globe or the Los Angeles Times on these issues because they become, they become places that are unpleasant to study at. The places that alumni don't want to support, um, and and uh, and by the way, since President Trump's um, passage of an executive order on Title VI of the 1964 Civil Rights Act that could penalize universities uh, for allowing discrimination against Jewish students, stemming exactly from this type of assaulted rhetoric against Jews in the Jewish state, uh, universities are also afraid of losing public, uh, federal funding. So that that was actually, uh, a, a, I think, a strong move uh, in terms of protecting the civil rights of Jewish students. Strong move by President Trump, even though his move was misunderstood or it was misrepresented um, by um, by far left Jewish activists and other activists that simply did not want any constraints on their ability to you know to uh, pound um, the Jewish state with anti-Semitic slander. Uh, and therefore, they said that Trump was Trump was trying to redefine Judaism, and by that way, that was sort of a, discriminate, a discriminatory act on his part, according to them. When in fact, that's not what he did at all. He merely included Jews as a distinct ethnic minority, together with African American students and Hispanic American students and other Asians and other uh, foreign uh, and other foreign students. Uh, or students of, um, you know, different uh, races and creeds, because the 1964 Civil Rights Act um, had a loophole in it when it came to Title VI, 
uh, and that did not include Jews as a distinctive ethnic minority, which now President Trump has done in, in passing the executive order. So in short, it was, it was a strong move in the context of this discussion uh, as a pushback against this type of, uh, of rabid, uh, of rabid uh, rhetoric against, uh, against Israel. Wow. You know, uh, I look upon this, uh, I look upon this uh, book as kind of like, uh, what is a wolfbane or a cross before werewolves? Um, if you have this book, you will be able to arm yourself as well as you can be armed uh, if you get into a struggle on college campuses, and which where I think the main battle is to be fought. I mean, uh, I think of it almost in biblical terms. I think that this movement is basically anti-Semitism, both anti-Westernism and anti-Semitism become intertwined. And I think this book contains ways that you can think about this that will calm you down, or at least it calms me down. And you can also go into action, so to speak, uh, by looking at various different chapters. I would start with the uh, uh, Dan Diker and a, and a fellow named Alan Baker uh, article first, but you can pick whatever you like. And once you go on from there, you feel kind of solid and you feel kind of confident and you can go on and learn a, a good deal more about this sort of thing. Um, at Rutgers University, we have a semi-famous professor, Professor Puar, uh, have you ever heard of her? Is it, I don't know if this news. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Oh, okay. She's well known as, as one of the greatest detractors and anti-Semites, uh, you know, in the inner, in the academic discourse. Okay. I didn't know if news were uh, going beyond New Jersey, but basically, her thing is that Jews, Israelis, are doing terrible things, including stealing body parts from uh, Palestinians. Now, for those of you who are not aware of this, this is known as a blood libel. And it is, this sort of thing has led to the deaths of many, many Jews over the years. Uh, I'm sort of half laughing here out of nervousness, but it is something that I never imagined people would be saying uh, in America. Uh, and yet they say it. And when Jews objected to this, the president of the university came out in defense of her and called her a world-class scholar. This is like someone believing in witches and being called a world-class scholar. And um, that, thankfully, that president is going. We have a new one. But I am just shocked at how people are frightened of these people. One other small example. The um, a bunch of people in Britain got a little alarmed about the lack of liberty in the United States, and they sent over this free speech caravan. It was a bunch of people from England, a mixed group, uh, and uh, they went to school to school to school. Now, when they came to Rutgers, um, they, they started to tell, you know, talk about free speech and its lack thereof in, in England and the United States. And they were interrupted by people who got on, uh, who got up and just went on and on and on in a very incoherent manner. And no one would stop it. They actually had police in the room, but the police don't stop it. 
No one stopped it. And so these people just talked in an incoherent manner until, um, you know, for about an hour, an hour and a half. They took turns. Um, I found that very unnerving. I'm an alumnus of, uh, of Rutgers, and I found it more than a little embarrassing that this had happened there. Um, I don't know if you feel that same thing about Harvard. Uh, they have a very high reputation, so maybe it doesn't bother people who have gone to Harvard. I, I don't know. I don't know. Do you hear from people who have gone to Harvard who are worried about this, who are interested in this uh, area? You know, I, I just uh, went to Harvard in November of 19 uh, and spent some time at the Harvard Hillel there with Hillel director, Dr. Rabbi Dr. Jonas Steinberg, who does, does a very good job with the Jewish community uh, at Harvard, and he does a very good job in um, interfaith and inter-community relations. Um, and and the, the feeling um, that was con con communicated to me was that the, this general problem of Israelophobia doesn't dominate the discussion among students at Harvard, that it's really the, the property uh, and the initiative of a, a small but very vocal uh, group of uh, uh, antagonists uh, to uh, the Jewish state, so that they don't make too much of it. Uh, being here, though, in Israel, I've been here now for three decades, uh, and having grown up in the United States and been educated at the Collegiate School of New York and Harvard College and spent some time at the Harvard Business School uh, before moving to Israel, um, one becomes more sensitive to this type of invective. And, and clearly, um, those of us uh, who grew up in the aftermath of the Holocaust, you know, even, you know, 15 years after the Holocaust, uh, remember that, uh, as you pointed out, George, uh, in one of our previous conversations earlier this week, that, you know, assaultive uh, rhetoric, anti-Semitic rhetoric can lead to mass murder. We saw it in the 1930s. Um, we saw it during Stalin's. We saw it during the Soviet period where the purges and the cleansing of, uh, you know, uh, of, of, of hundreds of thousands uh, of Jews in the Soviet Union, which is on the heels of the Holocaust. Um, you know, comes in the shadow of this uh, of this bloody rhetoric against Jews, and and so I think that we're living in a period now with Generation uh, you know Y and Z, where young people don't have the point of reference of the Holocaust. They don't have the point of reference of uh, of uh, extremist right wing regimes, and they don't recognize um, extremist left wing agitation as being anti-Semitism. And this is the, I think this is a major challenge for universities uh, across the United States. And the other challenge is that you, you, you know, when, this, when Professor Puar talks about Israelis shooting Palestinian children with malice of forethought, shooting them in the knees as a policy, which is, which is, a, which is you know, it's a, it's a knee libel, it's a bloody knee libel, uh, to use, um, you know, a, uh, an application of what you talked about is blood libel, but it, but people don't recognize, they don't know the facts. They have no context. They don't, they don't have any historical context. So they just buy into what, to what's cool. Administrators call people like her scholars because in their fields, they may be scholars such as professor Sari Magdisi, who's a scholar of the, 
of um, uh, Western literature, British literature, English literature, as um, his uncle was um, Edward Said at Columbia University. He was a great yeah. scholar of English literature, but they became they became sort of um, self-proclaimed scholars of the Middle East, which they were not. Um, and so there is this politicization of in, in, of their fields, um, you know, moving away from their fields of expertise where they got their doctorates, and and they use those PhDs in order to attract attention to areas where they have very little, if any, knowledge whatsoever. Um, but they become sort of uh, these self-proclaimed epistemological authorities in areas in which they they probably would get an F in basic Middle East history. <laughs> Yes, I, I like that idea. I like that idea a great deal here. What what I worry about is I don't think people, let's say freshmen going to a school, believe uh, everything that is said. But what I worry about is that they don't hear the other side. So it has a kind of wearing effect. And um, it's not like they go out and hit a Jew in the mouth or anything. But it, they don't hear the other side of things. And over the long run, this has um, an effect. It'll have an effect on congressmen. It'll have an effect on what your neighbor thinks. And um, that's what I worry about, that without, uh, I don't know, without people reading your book, without people acting, talking out loud, that they'll sort of wear us down, so to speak, and over a long period of time, uh, people will, you know, turn against Israel, perhaps turn against Jews, um, and start to think of them as you now think about, I don't know, members of the Ku Klux Klan or something like that. Do you worry about that, that it won't result in anyone being lynched, but it'll result in a, a lesser view of Jews It'll put us in that sort well, we, of danger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're right. I, I think there is a real concern that we have lost middle ground in intellectual debate uh, on university campuses. In other words, the the far left progressive uh, postmodern uh, worldview has taken uh, hold of the academic and intellectual. Uh, agenda on many university campuses, and that puts you know that puts Jews uh, who are in the middle, say, on the issue of Israel, in a very difficult position, because in 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 a world in which Israel is being cast as the cause of anti-Semitism, because it's strong, because it has a a, a three thousand five hundred year national history, because uh, it has a very well pronounced ethnic identity, um, because it has an ancient language associated with it, because it has an archaeological history, because it has a strong religious foundation, all of those principles are considered um, uh, very problematic in a postmodernist context. And therefore, Israel represents, for many of these students, and for many Europeans, by the way, um, who reject the concept of the nation state as being virtuous, uh, and who reject religion and who reject, um, uh, you know, who reject all of the, the strong characteristics of national identity. Um, this puts Israel right, Israel's face on the middle of the tar, in the middle of the target. Okay. And it means that Jews have to make a decision. 
in the context of, of, of far-left progressivism, it's not enough to be neutral. Either you are, you're with them or you're against them. And that is what this poisonous um, philosophy or uh, uh, framework called intersectionality, which has taken hold on university campuses, which is a network of oppressed people, so-called. So in other words, as Professor Cornell West at Harvard has said, if you are uh, a feminist, you must be anti-Israel and what they call pro-Palestinian. You must be pro-LGTB. You must be pro. Um, uh, you must be pro every movement um, that aligns, that identifies, self-identifies as a victim movement or as a uh, or as the result of a victimization. And either you're with the entire movement or you're against the entire movement. And that's why women at what was called the Dyke March, um, who happened to be um, friends of Israel and had a, uh, a, an Israeli flag in the march, were expelled from the march and shamed from the march um, for daring uh, to be, um, you know, pro-LGTB, but also pro-Israel. So you can't, it, it leaves no choice, no compromise, no middle ground in the context of intersectionality, the far left progressive, um, what's called progressive movement, and um, and the university uh, context. By the way, I think you, I, and any of the listeners of the podcast are about the only people in New Jersey who now understand the term intersectionality. Um, sometimes I talk to people and try and explain what all of this is on college campuses is about, and they they look at me and they're bewildered, and then they almost lose interest. It just seems like a um, alien landscape to them. It seems like they've entered into a, a jungle or a new country or, or a new planet. They really seem puzzled by the whole setup that's going on around there. Let me ask you something. I don't think we're going to have a good chance of convincing the newscasters and the rest of it to go to read this book and um, to understand it and discuss it, although I hope certainly more will do it than are doing anything about it now. What should our concrete goal be? In other words, I've got this guidebook. It is a dandy guidebook. It gives understanding. And what, what should our goal be for people like you and I who would like a little return to, I don't know, rationality and uh, objectivity and uh, pro-Israel uh, feelings? What, what, sh what should our goal be? I, I can't quite put a finger on it. Well, one of the great, um, I think one of the great aspects of the book, which listeners have not been um, updated about yet, is that a number of the articles have been written by people who are not Jewish, who are not Israeli, who are not, and, and who are even uh, black South Africans who suffered under apartheid, which is the one of the central charges of this Israel hatred, Jew hatred movement, uh, that uh, Israel and Israel friendly Jews are pro apartheid. So we, so what we did was to get authors who suffered 
from the very apartheid that that these antagonists are accusing Israel of, and they are now um, and they are now saying, as the, the famous French word "j'accuse" against those antagonists themselves, who, according to our authors from South Africa, have appropriated South Africa's history and used it cynically for uh, their own um, narrow political interests. So we have, for example, we have a black or an African-American writer who follows in the footsteps of Martin Luther King, who wrote about Martin Luther King's Zionist legacy uh, until today. We have South African intellectuals, as I mentioned a minute ago, who write against this libelous Israel apartheid slander. We have an Arab-Israeli writer or an Israeli-Arab writer um, who talks about the Palestinian-driven extremist um, narrative in the West by people that, such as Omar Barghouti, who exports this um, this salacious, horrible, uh, hate-filled narrative against Israel that gets picked up by professors like Hatem Bazian at Berkeley oh, or no. Sari Magdisi at, at UCLA, um, and they and they export this stuff. And we have authors who are just as black as they are, excuse the expression, or just as you know, non-white as they are, because they all play identity politics and accuse Israel of being a white settler colonialist enterprise. And we have seven or eight writers that, are, that come from the same ethnic backgrounds as they do to making the opposite argument. So in short, I think that, that, this, that the book affords people the opportunity to, see, uh, to read and, and embrace articles by people who are not white, not Jewish, not Israeli, not right wing, and and um, making the same arguments as that we're talking about here on the phone, on on the um, the podcast. I think you may be onto something of great importance. I actually went, there was a get together at the Columbia University, and they had people who were Africans, and um, they were very very effective, and people took them very very seriously. This may be an opening. Um, to have this type of person come on a college campus. First of all, I think that the um, left, let me call them, the left uh, would be a little bit unnerved by attacking them in a way they wouldn't be unnerved in attacking you or I. That may be an excellent idea here. And um, to get people on campus, you either have to be a full-time faculty member uh, or you have to have a group on campus that can get people on there. And uh, there are groups, uh, Chabad of all things, is uh, pretty gutsy. And uh, I have plans to have them invite some people on campus to have a conference about this sort of thing. So that may be a very valuable suggestion for that idea there. Um, are you. It is. We, Israel, by the way, just bear in mind. The listeners on this on this call, uh, the podcast is that Israel today has many um, colleagues and even friends, I would say, in inverted commas, in the Middle East. You know, there's been a complete reversal of fortunes here, in which the this Palestinian uh, hate campaign, um, driven not by the Palestinian middle class per se or the professional class, but the leadership, beginning with Mahmoud Abbas who accuses Israeli rabbis of poisoning the wells and, uh, and worse. And you can see that, you know, in his, um, uh, in his um, public um, 
uh, appearance before the European Commission last year, or you can see it in these uh, Palestinian uh, NGOs in Ramallah funded by the Europeans. Um, but this doesn't reflect what's going on in Israel, and it doesn't reflect what's going reflect what's going on in many parts of the West Bank, uh, and it doesn't reflect the hatred that many people in Gaza have to the Hamas, which is a totalitarian, uh, not uh, a fascist, anti-Semitic um, hate group. You can read it in their own uh, Hamas covenant online. Just go to. Just go to uh, go to uh, any of the uh, the sites that have in English the Hamas covenant to read. You know uh, the this this uh, complete uh, reincarnation of a Nazi uh, type of fascist uh, uh, anti-Semitic uh, invective against Israel. And, and that and by the way, those same ideas permeate the PLO. They just have different tactics. And the point is that the Palestinian people on the ground here. And the Arab countries, beginning with Saudi Arabia, the Gulf states, um, they are embracing Israel as the solution to many of their problems, while the, the real voices of, of hatred and anti-Semitism are primarily today in the West, in European cities, um, and, and uh, as well as in American cities, very much driven by a lot of the Palestinian expat um, academic leaders who get funded by uh, still by Europeans, unfortunately, under the false banner of human rights and um, you know equality and freedom and all of these um, disguised type of Stalinist Soviet um, Orwellian language um, that is uh, really represents nothing but a new form of anti-Semitism. The point being, though, that the reality in the Middle East is is 180 degrees different than what those in the West that are, are the antagonists and the opponents, the enemies of Israel um, and Jewish-friendly people to Israel uh, are espousing. Let me ask you, you um, um, are coming to the United States, is that correct, to uh, talk about your book? And well, it, it depends what the coronavirus uh wishes to say about all of this. Yeah. But uh, our plan was to come sometime uh, in the coming few months to the United States to have roundtables and conferences and to bring some of the authors, um, uh, Olga, attorney Olga Mesway, the one of the uh, black South African intellectuals who's written a wonderful article in our uh, compendium, and, and her husband, Joshua Washington, uh, who follows in the footsteps of Martin Luther King, who wrote a wonderful article in our compendium. Um, they're in California, and, uh, and we have been discussing, um, you know, having um, presentations in Washington at some universities. But this is all based on when it, it would be safe to travel in terms yeah. of this spread of this uh, of this coronavirus. Well, I'm not surprised about the Africans. The African students that I have who are very conservative um, in, in a million different ways. And um, they were not at all. They, they knew nothing of this anti-Semitism, and in play, they looked to Israel as an example of what could be done for people rising up from nothing to something. And so I never had a single anti-Semitic black student or anyone who was even on the left. They're all, at least the ones I had, are very conservative. I mean, everything from the, they dress conservative, they talk conservative. 
and they have a set of family values that we could learn from. Um, how would people keep what you, what you do though have in the what one sec what you do have in the African American community is a very profound disagreement within the community. Um, as I've come to learn through my discussions with uh, Joshua Washington and his father, Reverend Dumasani Washington, who is the very, uh, very well-respected uh, head, he was the pastor of, of um, a very large church in Stockton, California, and they, are, um, they, they have been sharing with me that within the African-American community is this deep divide between um, the Louis Farrakhan uh, oh, demonstrably yeah. anti-Semitic, demonstrably Islamist, um, uh, that has its roots in the old Muslim, black Muslim, black power, black Panther uh, radicalization of the black community in beginning in the late in the later 1960s. That was a radicalization that Dr. Martin Luther King stood up against. Um, if you remember yourself, uh, 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 George, you remember that there was a radicalization of the SNCC, the, the Student right, Nonviolent right. Coordinating Committee, right. um, that uh, became Islam friends with these radical Islamic organizations in the late 1960s with the Black Panthers versus the Southern Christian Leadership Conference of Martin Luther King and Al Abernathy and those uh, types of uh, leaders uh, that we talked about. So they, that still continues today. Uh, in the African-American community. And that's why you see uh, today this very problematic uh, movement of intersectionality that essentially casts Israel as a violator of black American human right, civil rights. I have to say that again. The, the, the intersectional movement in which you have Palestinian-American activists like Linda Sarsour, yeah. who gets up at a black power Black Rights Matter, Black Lives Matter rally, and tries to incite Black Americans to um, to oppose Israel because Israel trains uh, police forces in anti-terrorism, uh, you know, as a service um, mm. to these to different cities and counties in the United States, and thereby accuse Israel of being a fundamental violator of the rights. Of, of primarily young black men who are being, you know, who, uh, who for whatever reason, those particular um, people who are in trouble with the law or or uh, have some issue with the police. So they pull us, they pull Israel into the Black Lives Matter issue, making Israel a civil rights issue for black Americans, not a political issue between Israel and the Palestinians. If you can wrap your head around what I've just said. It's no, quite, I can, but I'm a little surprised. I, I am aware of the black power situation, but I didn't think that they had made great inroads among the, I don't know how to put it, recent African-Americans. That is, those who have come from Africa in the last, I don't know, 50 years or something like that. Are you saying that they have made roads even with the recent African immigrants to the United States? No, no, no. I'm saying that the African-American Black Lives Matter movement, oh, yeah, okay. which is part of the, which I think was, was um, really took on a lot of ener energy under the Obama administration, which essentially, they talked about the 99% versus the 1%. They talked about, you know, white America versus black America. It, that, that's what I'm talking about, okay, is that right. Israel has been thrust into the middle, against its will, into the middle of that 
um, you know, okay. difficult discussion um, because uh, Israel is being is, is considered by the primarily Palestinian American activists as being representative of some white, white colonialist um, imperialist reality, which. You know, those accusations were launched in Israel as early as the 1970s right. uh, at the United Nations, as you remember. Well, that is just we've just gone down the slippery, sliding slope, sliding slope. And that is the argument uh, made today. Uh, go go to go Google Linda Sarsour, S-A-R-S-O-U-R. She's a very vocal Palestinian-American activist, and she has been making this argument and trying to rally up the troops in the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, uh, I wanted to ask you something. When, how, if people want to come to the events you're going to have, I mean, this thing has got to end at some time, right? Coronavirus. Uh, how would they keep track so they would know when you're coming or um, where you'll well, be? Well, people are very welcome to follow me on Twitter. Follow me on Twitter at at Dan Diker, one word, D-A-N-D-I-K-E-R, 84, at Dan Diker, 84. Um, uh, so I go by the handle BDS on mast at Dan Diker 84. Um, and I will, you know, make announcements there on Twitter or they can come to, uh, they can contact me uh, at the uh, Diker D I K E R at, uh, JCPA dot O R G. That's my email address. Uh, and you know, the Jerusalem center for public again? affairs, you're very welcome to Could you give visit that our again? website. Could you give that again, but much slower for the elderly amongst us? Just give sure. your you uh, can for those email. people who follow Twitter. If you follow Twitter or you go on to Twitter, you would just put in the in the Twitter address box at Dan Diker eighty four, uh, or email me at d i k e r at j c p a dot o r g, or come to the Jerusalem Center for Public Affairs website at j c p a dot o r g. And download, um, you can download this book. Uh, you can read very important articles on this issue of Israelophobia, the Iranian threat, um, you know, the, the Palestinian issue, all sorts of anything you want to know about well, Israel in the Middle East. This come to jcpa.org and we have. This book is like a little encyclopedia, yeah. the whole story. Um, if you can just go through this, it's not that big a book. Uh, you will have a pretty good understanding of of the of the current landscape in regard to these issues of Islamophobia. It's really, I would say, if you do that, you're in pretty good shape, and you're allowed to rest after you do that. Um, I want to <laughs> very good. <laughs> I want to thank you again. I hope to be in touch with you in the future. I'm astonished that I didn't know of you before this. I feel a little bit embarrassed. But um, now that I know about this, I'm always giving away books that help explain things. And uh, this is kind of nice. Uh, I've got a one-stop shop here, and I can just say, here, read this, which is nice. I want to thank you again for coming on this show. I know you're an extremely busy man. And um, we'll be in touch in the future, I hope. I look forward to it. look forward to coming on the podcast again. And uh, being in touch with you and uh, and your friends and listeners uh, to the podcast. Thank you for having me as a guest. Thank you.